Hello, and welcome to PW's LitCast, a podcast from Publishers Weekly. In each episode, we speak with authors of fiction and nonfiction. I'm Lenny Picker of Publishers Weekly, and today I have the privilege of speaking with author Jeff Lantos, whose Why Longfellow Lied, The Truth About Paul Revere's Ride, is being published by Charles Bridge, the sponsor of today's podcast. Good afternoon, Jeff. Good afternoon. Would you mind starting us off with a brief excerpt from the book? Not at all. First, think about the famous lines from the poem, one if by land and two if by sea and I on the opposite shore will be. But what if no patriot could get across the Charles River or over Boston Neck? How could Bostonians get a message to the countryside? That's when the Charlestown patriots hit on an idea of the signal lanterns. Revere wrote, I agreed with the Charlestown gentlemen that if the British went out by water, we would show two lanterns in the North Church steeple, and if by land, one. Parenthetically, in fact, if Revere didn't call them lanterns, he called them lanthorns, because in 1775, the translucent lantern sides were made from paper-thin slices of cow horn. Revere had been put in charge of this lantern business, and the next day, April 17th, he recruited three operatives. In all his writings, Revere never identified who they were. He wouldn't even admit that there were three. I left Dr. Warren's, he wrote, and called upon a friend and desired him to make the signals. Despite Revere's caution, people talk. And the names of the three operatives were known in Boston soon after the event. One was John Pulling, and it was to his house on the corner of Ann and Cross Streets that Revere likely headed right after his meeting with Warren. Pulling, age 38, was a longtime friend, but it was more than friendship that thrust him into this supporting role. There was also the fact that he was a vestryman at the North Church, meaning that any time of the day or night, Pulling could ask the groundskeeper to unlock the door to the church and let him into the sanctuary. Revere knocked on Pulling's door. A bolt slid back. The door opened, and Pulling peeked out. What followed was likely a very short conversation, because all Revere had to say was two lanterns. In the poem, Longfellow had Revere say, if the British march. But after his meeting with Warren, Revere knew the British were marching. Longfellow continued with the ifs. He wrote one if by land and two if by sea. Again, there was nothing iffy about it. Warren had told Revere the British were going by water across the Charles River estuary. Nor did Revere say to Pulling, an eye on the opposite shore will be, as Longfellow wrote. Revere had no idea if he would make it to the opposite shore. To do that, he'd have to get past the Somerset, the 64-gun British warship anchored in the ferryway between Boston and Charlestown. From Pulling's place, Revere likely hurried home to get his boots, spurs, and riding coat. 
Let's imagine a quick hug and a kiss for wife Rachel. And then Revere was out the door, his boots crunching on the oyster shells that covered North Square. Okay, now we're ready for the white knuckle rowboat ride. Thanks, Jeff. Could you put that selection from your book in the broader context? Yes. The Patriots had built a supply depot for their military equipment in Concord, Massachusetts, about 18 miles from Boston. And here they were storing not just their muskets and their musket balls and their limited amount of gunpowder, but all the uh, things that are necessary uh, for war, canteens, blankets, shovels, what have you. Uh, 30 citizens were concealing these munitions in their, their barns, their houses, the attic eaves, their outbuildings. And General Gage was looking for these supplies. He knew that without armaments, all the Patriot talk about rebellion was just talk. There was nothing they could do to back it up. So he sent spies into the countryside, and lo and behold, they found these munitions in Concord and reported back to Gage. And that's why Gage was sending 800 soldiers called regulars out of Boston that night. 800 soldiers were marching from Boston to Concord to destroy the colonial munitions and end the rebellion. And the Patriots also had their spies, including their spy master, Dr. Joseph Warren. He was one of the only leading Patriots left in Boston. Everyone else had fled. Adams and Hancock had fled. And Revere was uh, Warren's um, Hermes. He was his messenger. And so he was summoned along with a uh, tanner named William Dawes. And uh, Warren sent them out of Boston in different directions, just in case one was arrested. So Dawes went over the land bridge, which no longer exists. But in the old days, in 1775, there was only one road out of Boston. Boston was a peninsula, almost an island. Uh, and they locked that road at 9 o'clock every night. Dawes got out just in time. So with Dawes going by land, Revere went by water. Uh, in other words, he went out the north end of Boston and Dawes went out the south end. So Warren was hedging his bets with his alarm riders. Could you just sort of take a step back from the specifics and, and talk a little more generally about where the idea for this book came from? This idea came from a classroom discussion in which one of my students, after memorizing Paul Revere's ride by Henry Longfellow, uh, said how much of this is true because in the history books, it will tell you that Revere never made it to Concord. <laughs> that was his mission to get to Concord. But he was arrested uh, by British patrols who were uh, gathered at the various choke points along the roads that night because they knew colonial alarm riders would be out that night. They were looking for them, especially looking for Revere, who had been riding for the uh, Patriots since the Boston Tea Party. So they arrested Revere about uh, four miles short of Concord in the town of Lincoln, Massachusetts, between Lexington and Concord. Uh, Dawes didn't make it either. He wasn't captured, but he reversed direction and sped back toward Boston when he saw the British patrol. So the person who really made it to Concord was a doctor from Concord named Dr. Samuel Prescott, who had actually been out that night courting his girlfriend in Lexington and just happened to bump in to Revere and Dawes as they were leaving Lexington. And once they sussed out the fact that he was a patriot, 
and not a loyalist. Uh, they included him in their alarm mission, and he provided a great benefit because he was a doctor and he had treated most of the patients along the road. So when he went to knock on their doors at one in the morning, they weren't frightened because they knew who he was. So a student said to me, how much of this poem is, is true? So I knew that Revere didn't make it to Concord, so I wondered what else isn't true? Uh, so I uh, spent a few summers in uh, various archives uh, reading primary source documents about what really happened that night. And uh, many years later, <laughs> an editor at uh, Charles Bridge uh, happened upon the manuscript and, and called me up and said, uh, let's work on this together. And it certainly has a lot of uh, eye-opening revelations for many people like me who really know what happened or think they know of what happened through the poem. You know, the fact that I think you have a diagram in the book that there were actually 22 midnight riders that night in April 1775. The fact that Revere's role in it, uh, even if it wasn't all that Longfellow said, was not even featured in his obituary. What, as you did all your research in the primary sources, surprised you the most about what you learned? What surprised me was how, what a beautiful job the colonists had done it in organizing this alarm system. I mean, this was community organizing at its best. And I think it's important for students and also for readers to understand that the, the lone hero myth doesn't apply here. I mean, not only did Revere not make it to Concord, but as you say, he was he was one of many, maybe two dozen, almost 30 riders who were out that night. And this was a well-orchestrated system that had been put in place uh, 100 years before during King Philip's War, uh, when half the Massachusetts towns were attacked by Native Americans upset that the uh, settlers were pushing into their territory. So they decided to fight back. That was the last big stand they made in 1675 and 76, King Philip's War. And so beginning after that, the colonists realized they needed a uh, an alarm system, town-to-town -town alarm system. And so it wasn't only riders. It was also bonfires, uh, gunshots if there was a river uh, that, that was uncrossable, and even trumpet players. And it wasn't just white people riding. There was a young black kid and there was a, a woman. It's really uh, a marvel to read how how beautifully it ran. This was a well-oiled machine. And I'll tell you how well-oiled it was. News of the British march had reached the New Hampshire border. That's 40 miles from Boston. People there knew about the invasion while the British were still slogging through the marshes of Cambridge. And in fact, by the time the British got to Lexington, uh, there were so many gunshots and church bells ringing that the British soldiers urged their commander to turn around and go back. They said, this countryside is, is already alarmed. We're sitting ducks out here. We should turn around and go back. And Colonel Smith was right on the edge of retirement and wasn't about to defy an order. So he insisted on continuing to Concord. So you described how this was really a group effort. Absolutely. But anyone in particular who was responsible for, you know, coordinating and organizing it? Was it Dr. Warren? Was it someone else who was less well known? It was Dr. Warren. Um, in fact, Warren had sent Revere to Concord two times previous to this, thinking that the British were going to march that night. So this was the uh, third time <laughs> that he had sent his uh, his ace alarm rider 
going west with the alarm of the march. Think about the fact that it was a great move having a doctor as your spy master because anybody could walk into Warren's office and say they were sick. <laughs> and uh, Warren was recently widowed and he was very handsome. So there were a number of uh, young women who would also make appointments just so they could flirt with him. Uh, but between the flirters and the sick people, uh, the spies could go in. People down at the wharves who, who could see what was going on. Tavern owners who heard talk when the British soldiers went in to drink. It was a very small and tight community there. So uh, word of the British march had trickled into Warren most of the day on the, uh, on the 18th of April. And he also had cultivated a secret agent behind the British lines. And um, historians think it may have been General Gage's wife who Warren had probably treated in Boston, since he did treat upper crust Brits who didn't want to go to the uh, military surgeons. They wanted to go to a, uh, a well-trained American doctor. Jeff, in the poem, there's a line from Longfellow, uh, the fate of a nation was riding that night with everything that you know about the, you know, the real history behind the poem and the things that, you know, Longfellow decided for one reason or another to leave out. Does that line strike you as hyperbolic? Uh, absolutely not. <laughs> and I'll tell you why. Uh, this gets to the uh, last chapter of the book, why Longfellow lied. And, um, uh, to under, really understand this poem, uh, this, and this was another big surprise that I encountered during my research, is you have to understand that th this was really written as a Civil War poem. Longfellow was using the Revolutionary War to rally support for the Civil War. That fact was pretty well known by readers of the poem, and it was also taught in the schools up until about 1920. And at that point, the teacher's guides began to leave that fact out. And as a result, we're left with a poem that is um, massively inaccurate in terms of history. But the whole point is Longfellow was not writing the poem to inform. He was writing it to inspire. Uh, he was a quiet abolitionist. Now, I, I say quiet because he was in a tough spot because his wife was the daughter of a cotton mill owner in Massachusetts. Now, great fortunes were made in New England and Boston, especially in the cotton business. In 1860, there were 472 cotton mills in New England. And the cotton lords also got into banking and railroads. And uh, their empire was built on cheap cotton. And the way you get cheap cotton is you don't pay your labor. So you can imagine that Sunday night dinners with uh, dad might have been a little strained and Longfellow had to hold his tongue when it came to matters of slavery. Although if you look in his account books, you can see that he was sending hundreds of dollars in today's dollars, hundreds of dollars to anti-slavery societies and runaway slaves and schools for escaped slaves. So he let his wallet do the talking. But in his poetry, he had to be a little tricky. He, he followed Emily Dickinson's advice to tell the truth, but tell it slant. Don't hit it on the head.
So given that he was writing to inspire rather than to, you know, give a factual narrative during his lifetime after the publication of the poem, was he sort of called out on that, on the inaccuracies and the omissions, whether by historians or whether by people who uh, were pro-slavery? Absolutely. Uh, in my book, you can read uh, some of the criticisms of, of local historians. And Longfellow actually got a letter from a reader asking him if the poem was, was true. And he said, uh, if you want a true version, read the Buckingham Magazine uh, from uh, 1832, and you can read Paul Revere's account of it. This was 50 years after he had come across that issue of the magazine in 18. He read it first, read it in 1832, because he also had a piece in the same magazine. But you, you understand that, of course, he knew the real story. And he was willing to take the hits uh, from the uh, the critics uh, because in his heart, he knew that he he wasn't writing the poem as as an historian. He was writing it as an abolitionist. So to what extent does studying this literary treatment of a historical event for want of a better term, an ideological purpose, you know, for the slant, give any guidance about the acceptable limits or where lines should be drawn about doing that for other historical events? Yeah, in fact, one of the critics said that poetic license is fine when you're coming up with uh, imaginary stories, but it, it shouldn't trespass uh, into the realm of history. You know, this gets into that great discussion about what we should be teaching our kids. I mean, this is going on now all over the country. Do we teach our kids the real history or do we teach them the mythology? And if you want to teach them the mythology, you read the Longfellow poem. You can tell he's turning Revere into a myth in the last couple of stanzas when he switches from present tense to future tense. The people shall awaken and listen to hear. This is the move from man to myth. And uh, I think it's important for teachers, being a teacher, obviously, I think it's important to teach the history and the myth, but make sure kids know the difference. And before we end, can you talk a little bit about how your work on the book and you know this intellectual project connects with the innovative approach to teaching history that you adopted uh, using musical theater to really enable students to connect with the material? Yes, my philosophy as a teacher is students learn best when they're either performing something or reciting it. Uh, I hate the idea of students sitting passively at a desk and listening to what I have to say. I, I want them to be active participants in the learning process. I want them to be They'd be off their butts. I want them to be dancing. I want them to be speaking the very words that were spoken at the Constitutional Convention. I want them to be memorizing the great poems in our literature, like Paul Revere's Ride. I think if you, if you sing it and dance it and act it and debate it and recite it, uh, you really take kids to a point where knowledge and joy intersect. And uh, I like to think that that's where I'm taking my students every day. Thank you for your time, Jeff. Thank you, listeners, for joining us. The book, again, is Why Longfellow Lied, 
The Truth About Paul Revere's Midnight Ride. The author, again, is Jeff Lantos, published by Charles Bridge. Please join us again soon for the next Litcast.